Mormonism is just a really fun place to play. I mean, it's a great laboratory to study all kinds of things because Mormonism is right at the heart of all kinds of questions that we have in modern society, uh, whether it's about minority, majority relations, about how we organize a democratic society, the role of religion in the public sphere, gender, marriage, race, marriage. I mean, you, you name it, the, the kinds of topics that are important to us today in the 21st century. Mormonism, Mormon history, Mormon theology has something to say about that. And by studying Mormonism, we can learn more about the world that we live in. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we explore aspects of LDS doctrine, history, and culture. Digging deeper and having a whole lot of fun. Learning about things that affect our lives and our faith. We are everyday Mormons sharing extraordinary conversations. The Latter-day Saint tradition has been defined by the writing of its history. Mormonism the world over has drawn on written records to define its spirituality, to consider its past, and to contemplate its present. Today we have Dr. Patrick Mason here with us to discuss the future of the writing of Mormon history. He is the author of several books and is currently an associate professor of Mormon studies at Claremont University. So for listeners who have uh, not necessarily followed the historiography of the writing of Latter-day Saint history, let's talk about how it has been written in the past and how Latter-day Saints have seen the process of writing history. There's been a huge change in the way that Mormon history has been written over our nearly 200 years of history now. For most of the early decades of the church, it was very divided with anti-Mormons writing on one side, clearly trying to dispute the claims uh, that uh, the church members uh, believed in. And then uh, you had church leaders and, and church members and church historians writing very faith-promoting ways in which they showed that the God was actively involved in, in the history of, of the church and so forth. In the 20th century, especially beginning in about the middle of the 20th century, we started to see some changes in that the historical profession itself was becoming more professional. People were getting graduate degrees, and, and the way that people thought about history and writing, and writing about history was different. And so we've started to see over the past half century more of a move towards what we would call kind of objectivity, of people trying to write from a more dispassionate standpoint where they're not going to weigh every truth claim, oh, did Joseph Smith really see God in that grove of trees? But rather, Joseph Smith said he saw God, and we can examine what that means. And, and that development has been available to both Latter-day Saint historians and people who are not Latter-day Saints, but who are interested in our history, and were able to, to write in not a polemical way, trying to dispute the claims of Mormonism, but simply trying to understand it. So there's, there's been a kind of broad change in the way that the history's been written. Now, let's talk about some of the steps towards making that change. Sure. One of the most significant contributions to the writing of Latter-day Saint history was B.H. Roberts' Comprehensive History of the Church. It's a six-volume set, and uh, you know, for many decades, it was the go-to source for understanding the you know, the words of Joseph Smith, the history of the church, in some cases on a day-by-day basis. Now, we have begun to move away from that. What were some of the contributions and what were some of the shortcomings of that compilation? We owe such a great debt of, of gratitude to him and many of the other early Latter-day Saint historians, first of all, for the preservation of all these records. I mean, it, it is amazing that we can document 
the early history of the Latter-day Saints because they kept their records oftentimes in great hardship. And so what Roberts did nearly a century uh, uh, after the church started was to compile all these documents into a kind of narrative form to be able to, to tell the story. And for him, he was one of these authors for whom God was very much present in, in the movement. God is, is an actor in it, and it is a, it's a faithful rendering of Latter-day Saint history in which it's about the restoration of the gospel. And it's, it's about the, the gospel coming forth and the prophet Joseph Smith receiving revelations. And it's, it's told from the perspective of, of a believing Latter-day Saint. And he, he drew on the best available documents that he had at the time, sort of patched a lot of things together in order to, to make it work as a kind of semi-coherent narrative and to tell the story that he believed testified of God's working in the Restoration. Now, there are some shortcomings with the way that, that Roberts and some of the other early LDS historians worked. Sometimes they weren't always very clear about where their sources were coming from. Sometimes the uh, sources weren't uh, entirely reliable. Sometimes they were second or third-hand sources. As we've done more research, we find sources that are closer to the actual events that maybe relate things in a little bit different way than they were in some of the sources that he had. Again, just the, the way that historians do their business has changed a lot over the past hundred years since, since Robert was doing his work. Uh, so I think we owe a tremendous debt to him for, for the way that he did it. But just we, we do history a little bit differently now in a different tone, a different register. Um, and so that's why we see uh, some changes. Right. And really, it isn't until the mid-19th century when you see this sense of the historian's craft as being seeking out history as it really was. You know, before that, you know, it tended to serve political purpose, you know, a religious purpose, an ideological purpose, and people didn't pretend that it did anything else. As you say, some of the records in you know, B.H. Roberts' uh, compilation, you know, they were faulty in a number of ways. But uh, by the same token, it did preserve these records and make them ac accessible to Latter-day Saints. Toward, as you said, towards the mid-20th uh, century, we began to do things a little bit different, differently. Who were some of the most significant figures in redefining how we write Latter-day Saint history? Yeah, one of the significant figures, and, and this is sort of uh, controversial for believing Latter-day Saints, but uh, one was a woman named Fawn Brody, who uh, was actually the niece of President David O. McKay, but she, she left the church. And she wrote a biography of Joseph Smith called No Man Knows My History. And it was published in 1945, is still in print today, is one of the most read and most popular books about Mormonism ever published. And in it, she... She said that she was interested in studying Joseph Smith not from the perspective of a believer with the presumption that he was a prophet, but understanding him as a kind of fascinating historical character, trying to understand him in a way that would be accessible to secular folks or people who are believers but not of the Mormon tradition. Now, Brody herself, there were some problems. She didn't have access to all the sources uh, that she could have used. She drew conclusions that were oftentimes quite critical of the prophet Joseph Smith, but also admired him in many other ways as well. Her portrayal of the prophet Joseph Smith was certainly not the portrayal that is given in Sunday school and, and over the general conference pulpit. And again, she uh, uh, she left the church and uh, was not on not on particularly amicable terms. And uh, but she was an important figure 
in moving the scholarship about Mormonism into a place that would be of interest to people who are not Latter-day Saints and not purely polemical. A lot of people read her book and, and see it as only hostile to Joseph Smith, but it's actually more complicated than that. And she does try to be even-handed in certain ways. After her, probably the most important, and there were a number of other people, so I'm kind of skimming over a lot, but the, probably the most important faithful LDS historian to move things along was a man named Leonard Arrington, who for a time was the official uh, historian of the church. And Leonard was very prolific. He published lots and lots of books. But uh, his uh, one of his earliest and most important works is called Great Basin Kingdom, which was a history of the pioneers settling in Utah. It was an economic history of the, of the Latter-day Saints in the 19th century. And he, what Leonard did is he wanted to, even though he was a faithful Latter-day Saint himself and believed all these things, he said, I'm going to step back from my beliefs and I'm going to treat this, the history, as you said, as it really was, right? I'm going to take into account all the sources that are available to me. He was sometimes critical of the decisions that church leaders made, like Brigham Young, and he, he laid it out there in a way that would be accessible to, to a wide variety of people, uh, whether believers or not believers. And I actually think Great Basin Kingdom is, is really one of the first great works of Mormon history because it moved us into a phase where Mormon history could be studied by anybody. It could be accessible to anybody, not just believers or non-believers. And I think it's also significant in the sense that it's one of the very first histories by a faithful Latter-day Saint in which you know the supernatural or the providential agents are not immediately apparent in the picture. Right. It is uh, maybe, for lack of a better word, a naturalistic history. Yeah. I mean, Leonard believed that um, he said, with the tools that I have as a historian, I can't necessarily tell what God is thinking on any given day or even necessarily what God was doing. What I have uh, access to are what human beings did. And they oftentimes believed, early church leaders and members believed that they were being inspired by God to do X, Y, or Z. But he says, I don't have access to the mind and will of God, so I'm going to study this, again, in, as you said, in a kind of naturalistic or humanistic way. That's not to deny the possibility of divine workings in the world, but this is what's available to me given my tools as a historian. I'm not a theologian, he said. He wasn't writing as that. I'm writing as a historian based on the sources that I have. Leonard Arrington, obviously, he was a, a monumental figure in redefining how we wrote Latter-day Saint history, but he found himself at odds with some of ch the church leadership, right? Right. W during the, a period in the 1970s when uh, Arrington was the church historian, he, uh, it was a very exciting time for Mormon history because the church historian's office, which for a long time, well, really for its entire history, had been managed not by professional historians, but by members of the church, often, uh, usually general authorities. Uh, Joseph Fielding Smith had a very important role uh, for many, many years as, as the church historian. And the records weren't always available to researchers. Uh, there wasn't a lot of uh, research coming out of the church historian's office. So in the 1970s, uh, Leonard Arrington was hired and, and, th and the church put a lot of resources into hiring a whole bunch of other historians to come in, and they started, uh, they were finding sources that nobody had ever looked at before. I mean, partly the library, the archives were a bit of a mess. They, they weren't professionally managed, uh, so, so nobody quite knew what, it, what even they had. Uh, and so as they, as they uh, went through the archives, went through the sources, they discovered all these wonderful sources. And so they began to write articles and books about Mormon history 
many of which followed the lead of, of Leonard Arrington, a kind of naturalistic approach. Now, these were all, I mean, they were all church employees. These were believing Latter-day Saints, very faithful, temple recommend holders and all this. But, but the way that they were writing, they believed that they were writing histories that supported and were generally favorable towards the church, but was oftentimes in a kind of naturalistic vein. This was the training they received as, as historians going to, to graduate schools and so forth. And there were some leaders of the church, some apostles in particular, who were wary of, of this approach and critical of it, and they believed that the, the history that we write about our church, especially church employees, the church history department, should be explicitly faith-promoting, and should, at every turn, recognize and acknowledge the hand of the Lord in the history, and should not include aspects of the history that could potentially embarrass the church or that would be troublesome. And so it was really a difference of philosophy and difference of approach in terms of how do we best tell our story? Do we lay out all of the evidence and all of the facts and believe as a a faithful Latter-day Saint that the truth uh, and all the truth, the whole truth, will eventually lead to the conclusion that, in fact, this is God's church? Or do we only tell the parts of our story that are most evidently in favor of that providential narrative? Arrington's approach, it didn't last for too long, right? No, it was uh, really a few years in in the 1970s. And and then what happened is that uh, uh, Leonard Arrington um, lost his title as church historian and went back to a general authority. It had always been a general authority before that. And ever since then, it has been a, a general authority. Now it's typically a, a member of the 70. And what they did is they, they took that operation. Um, some of the people went on to other employment, but most of the people went down to BYU. And they established what was called the Joseph Fielding Smith for uh, LDS history or Latter-day Saint history. And so Leonard Arrington and many of the other people uh, with him came, came down to Brigham Young University and continued to do much of the same work, but no longer in and under the auspices of the church office building, per se. Right. They're no longer the uh, official church historians, as it were. Now they are academics, professors. Which in some ways was an appropriate move because that was the mode that many of them were riding in and felt most comfortable in. I mean, these were people who were trained with PhDs in, in great graduate programs around the country. And so in some ways... It was a repudiation of the, some of the kinds of work that they'd been doing in the 1970s. In other ways, frankly, it was a better fit for them to be housed at a university, even at the church's university, whereas the church uh, historian's office then moved in, in slightly different directions. You could argue that actually now the church historian's office has come back to that model, closer to that model, and there's a number of really exciting, highly professional and expert um, scholarly endeavors coming out of the, the church historical department, the Joseph Smith papers, the, the book published a few years ago about the Mountain Meadows mass- Massacre, which is outstanding scholarship, very rigorous, very fair, uh, published by Oxford University Press. So, so I think we've had a kind of back to the future uh, right. in, in, in terms of there, there was a moment in the kind of 1980s and 1990s where there was a, a bit of a chill on this particular approach to church history. But I think we've more or less come back to the kinds of models that Leonard Arrington and his colleagues uh, fostered in the 1970s. Yes, and it seems that the transparency approach is is winning, ultimately. I mean, you know, as you said, there was a chilling off period. But, I mean, now, you know, you look at the kinds of resources that are being poured into their church history library, into digitization efforts, and into the, the crack team of academically trained historians, and, and several of them, 
who are constantly providing uh, you know materials in regards to the Joseph Smith papers that it's it's an incredible detail and it's it's candid. Yeah, and I think there's there's two impulses here. One is that the internet changed everything. That for obviously for for most of our history, for most of human history, there wasn't a thing as as the, as the internet. So if you really wanted to learn something, you had to work hard for it. You had to go to books, go or, to the archives, know, dusty archives. Hours yeah, and, yeah, that just wasn't accessible for most people, right? But with the internet, you had this explosion of knowledge. That these things that had been sort of arcane and esoteric was now available to to everybody. And that changed a lot of things, and there were a lot of members of the church who were uh, troubled by things that they learned online that they hadn't heard in church before that hadn't been covered in official church publications, whether it be B.H. Roberts or Joseph Fielding Smith or or some of the other even uh, more contemporary uh, treatments. And so in some ways, uh, the efforts of the historical department now is is a reaction and a response to that and a belief, and we live in an age of transparency. And so there's a belief, and I think a real renewed confidence that if this is true, it can bear scrutiny. And so that was the spirit behind the Mountain Meadows project and the authors who were church employees. They said, we're going to follow this wherever uh, wherever it might take us. And if it leads us towards Brigham Young's complicity, wherever that might lead us, we're going to follow the sources. And they did. They did an expert job and produced a, a, a book that'll stand the test of time. And then the same spirit informs the Joseph Smith papers, the, you know, the founding prophet of, of our religion, the, you know, the, and the sense that we are going to publish and uh, expertly annotate every document that we can possibly find that's associated with his life. And we're going to put it out there in published volumes. We're going to put it out there on the internet. We're not afraid of scrutiny of our founding prophet. I mean, that, that, that is, is a, a new and a, a kind of inspiring confidence that, yeah, there, there are going to be some things that are, that are tough, things that we haven't talked about before that we need to talk about, but we can do it and we're not afraid. In fact, I think you can make the good argument that this is even more faith-promoting history because it's faith in the Latter-day Saint history, right? It's no longer a born of fear. It's no longer born of insecurity, but rather a confidence that, as you say, our history is in a place to where it can endure questions, it can endure critique, and still continue to stand. Yeah, I think it's it's the move from something that was more like two-dimensional history to something that is more three-dimensional. And of course, we know that's, that's the way life is. I mean, human beings are complicated. Uh, human beings are flawed. And ultimately, this church is about the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And, and I mean, just for myself personally, you know, I, I grew up, just, I think, a pretty average Mormon kid. I uh, didn't know about any of these kind of uh, particular historical details. And then I came down uh, to, to BYU as an undergraduate, took a course from a really terrific uh, historian here, David Whitaker, on Mormonism. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of things like seer stones or the way that the word of wisdom, the interpretation and application of it uh, differed and changed over time. And so some of these kinds of historical issues that have tripped people up and that haven't been part of our mainstream narrative. And for me... Immediately what this did is, is I could relate to Joseph Smith, the other leaders of the church, and to my history as a Latter-day Saint, because I said, these, are, these are real people. And I could see in a different way God's hand working among people who are doing the best they can to respond to his voice and, and, uh, and to his call. So for me, it was liberating and empowering and uh, strengthened my faith to go from a two-dimensional to three-dimensional history. You have recently edited a volume, uh, Directions for Mormon Studies in the 21st Century. Now, the title of that text suggests that 
there has been something new and distinctive about the, uh, about the way that Mormon history is being written and will be written in this new century. So tell me more about that. So a couple of differences. One is, uh, as you said, there's a distinction uh, that I make between Mormon studies and what we had often previously called Mormon history. And uh, people debate what is Mormon studies, uh, what's included in it. But in, in my mind, there's a couple of things that are, that are key to this Mormon studies enterprise, which has really taken off in, in the past few years. One is that it includes but also goes beyond history. So much of our scholarship, which has been so good, I mean, as we've talked about the Leonard Arrington era, going back to B.H. Roberts and so forth. In the 20th century, most of the really good scholarship about Mormonism was historical scholarship. And uh, there were a few other people involved. I mean, a, a very important uh, sociologist named Armin Moss and, and a few other people. But for the most part, it was historians doing this kind of work. Well, Mormon studies now uh, seeks to be a, a fancy word that we use in, in, in uh, university settings, interdisciplinary, yes. <laughs> uh, w- which just means lots of different approaches. So we have historians and sociologists and e- economists and anthropologists. So basically, whatever your field of study, whatever your field of expertise, you can bring the things that you know and learn the theories that you have to better understand Mormonism both historically or in con- uh, contemporarily, theologically. Mormon studies now, there's a, there's a kind of a new vibrancy of Mormon theology, which is very exciting that, w- that we haven't seen in the past. And so Mormon studies is a kind of overarching term for all these different scholars all working together to understand Mormonism. The other thing that is very exciting is that we see more and more non-Latter-day Saints engaged in the study of Mormonism than we've ever seen before. And these are people who are obviously not doing it because they believe in Mormonism and want to prove the truth of Mormonism because they don't believe it and, and they don't become members of our, our church. They, they don't get baptized, but they're fascinated by it. They see it as uh, an important contribution to American religion, to global religion, to theology, to the sociology of religion, again, whatever their particular set of interests, and they can come out and say, wow, this is, this is not only worth studying just because it's there, but this is fascinating, it's captivating, it teaches something, uh, something about the human experience. And we have some fabulous work out by, you know, Laurie Maffley Kipp, obviously, yeah. who, who has been the president of the Mormon History Association, you know, Max Mueller, Amanda Hendricks-Komodo, you know, they've both done a fabulous work on race and Mormonism. We've seen, uh, you know, we've seen the study of Mormonism go in so many new directions recently. I mean, you know, the, the study of race has obviously really blossomed in the past uh, generation or so. Paul Reeve, you know, he won the Mormon History Association uh, Best Book Award for his, uh, his book, Religion of a Different Color. And, you know, and, you know, it, we should mention your own work on race. Yes, <laughs> yes. I, I have also uh, written a book on, uh, on race and Mormonism. But it's, it's interesting to me because, you know, these are questions that have, you know, existed in academia for, you know, for several generations now. You know, pe- people have been studying race and ethnicity and, and gender for, you know, for quite a while. But only now these, uh, these lines of inquiry are really taking hold within the study of Mormonism. Yeah, Mormon studies uh, is a little late to the party on some of these things, and oftentimes what's happening is that uh, these these theories and methods get developed in the academy by people studying other things, and then we have people who are interested in Mormonism going to graduate school and learning those theories and methods from the people who have done it, and then they come back and apply it to their study of Mormonism. So oftentimes we're 
you know, 20 years later or something like that. That's okay. I mean, it's, it's So fine. it is. <laughs> uh, but, but the other exciting thing about Mormon studies, for a long time, I'd say for the last really half of the 20th century, most of the work that was done by scholars about Mormonism was just for the sake of understanding Mormonism. And that, that was the focus. It was a laser-like focus just on understanding Mormonism. Now, a lot of the scholarly work on Mormonism is using Mormonism as a lens or a window to understand bigger things. So you mentioned Paul Reeves' excellent book about race. Yeah, his, his focus is on the story of race and how that's played out in Mormonism, but he's also telling a much broader story about the intersections of race and religion in, in America. About notions of whiteness and, and white power structure and white discourses. Right, and, and we see this in lots of, of different things. You know, uh, people who have used Mormonism to, to reflect on issues of religious tolerance in the 19th century or, um, or political arrangements and things like that. So Mormonism, actually, this is what I tell my students all the, all the time, both LDS and non-LDS. I said, Mormonism is just a really fun place to play. I mean, it's a great laboratory to study all kinds of things because Mormonism is right at the heart of all kinds of questions that we have in modern society. Uh, whether it's about minority, majority relations, about how we organize a democratic society, the role of religion in the public sphere, gender, marriage, marriage. I mean, you you name it, the, the kinds of topics that are important to us today in the 21st century. Mormonism, Mormon history, Mormon theology has something to say about that. And by studying Mormonism, we can learn more about the world that we live in. So Mormon studies, it's not always using everything about the world to understand Mormonism and kind of funneling all down to Mormonism. Sometimes it's using Mormonism as the starting place to then reflect more broadly on the bigger world that we're part of. And we're also seeing uh, the study of Mormonism has gone global. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you have, you know, Nestor Coelho, who has, you know, has spent hundreds of hours, you know, interviewing Latin American Latter-day Saints. You know, currently uh, my major research project is on, you know, the history of, uh, of Igbo and Efik Latter-day Saints in Nigeria who ended up identifying as Latter-day Saints even before, uh, you know, the release of the 1978 uh, Declaration. And you also have uh, the, the blooming of the study of, of Mormonism, you know, within within Asia as uh, demonstrated by uh, Melissa Inouye. That seems to me a, a rather interesting break in our study of Mormonism in that Mormonism has traditionally been seen as a foundationally American religion, but we're beginning to problematize that. Yeah, that's one of the, really the next steps. And as Mormon historians and Mormon scholars, we've, we've known this for a long time and, and have been a little bit slow on getting there. Now, just numerically, there's more Latter-day Saints who live outside the United States than, than inside. I don't know how that works in terms of activity rates and so forth, but just numerically, that's, uh, that's true. We've, we've done so little to understand Mormonism outside the United States. There are so many great stories to tell, and most of these are 20th century and 21st century stories. And oftentimes this requires language skills. It requires an expertise in those local cultures. I mean, I'm an American historian, and so I can't just take the assumptions and what I know about American history to understand Mormonism in Africa or in Japan or somewhere else. So we need people who, with deep expertise in those local histories and local cultures to then be able to understand what's going on as, as Mormonism spreads in, in some of those cultures. Why do you think that we've been so neglectful of these stories? 
I don't think um, there's been anything uh, malicious or, or intentional about it. I, I think it's been a resource itch, issue as much as, as anything. One is that most of our time and attention has been spent on 19th century Mormonism, which just makes a lot of sense. That's Joseph Smith, the founding, the pioneers. I mean, that's that's pretty important stuff. You got to get that stuff down, right? And so so part of it is just so much emphasis on the 19th century. The other part, as I just said, is is the language issues, the the, the cultural issues. And let's face it, uh, what you and I do as historians, this is a bit of a luxury profession, right? I'm, I'm not building bridges. I'm not curing cancer. I'm not growing crops, right? And so we benefit from a first world economy where we can choose to go into a profession like this in many of the countries where the church has had great success outside the United States. Doing the kind of work that we do as historians is really a luxury, and, there are, and the Latter-day Saint community is not big enough, strong enough, or socioeconomically positioned to be producing academics. And that's an excellent point. You know, I, I was just in Nigeria for the past month, and I, I, I met no Latter-day Saint who was going to be pursuing a history as right. a, a profession. Uh, unemployment is rampant. I mean, uh, they didn't even have many good roads in the city where I was living. So, frankly... Uh, oh, and, and we can add to that that you're, you're talking about maybe being one or two generations away from a uh, predominantly oral uh, historical culture. So they're in a place to where they have other things to worry about besides writing their history. Though, to be sure, given the, the great emphasis that Latter-day Saint theology places on the written record, even in these communities, you do see some efforts sure. at record keeping. But it is, you know, it, it certainly isn't to the degree that you would see within an American context. So, you know, looking at it from a, you know, from a bird's eye view at this point, what does the future hold for the study of Mormonism? One of the really exciting things is that Mormonism, at least in the United States, the study of Mormonism has been institutionalized in universities and in professional organizations. So I teach, I, I have a position in Mormon studies at a secular university, Claremont Graduate University. There are similar positions at Utah State University, at the University of Virginia. There are others on, on the drawing board. This is really exciting because this is how religions gain kind of intellectual respectability and join the intellectual and academic discussion. I mean, this is what happened with Jewish studies and Jewish scholars. This is what is, has happened really pretty recently with uh, Islamic studies. So for Mormon studies to be institutionalized with professorships uh, at various universities is very important. There's also really important institutions like the Mormon History Association, which is 50 years old, and uh, Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, also 50 years old. You know, and these kinds of institutions and periodicals where this scholarship is done. And these, a lot of this is just people supporting it out of blood, sweat, and tears. I mean, and, and there's financial contributions and so forth. But these are the institutions that, that have built us to where we are now. And I think where we go from here is further institutionalization. So Mormon Studies uh, now has occupies a place in uh, an organization called the American Academy of Religion, which is the largest professional organization of religion scholars in the world. Thousands of people come to this conference every year, and there are Mormon Studies sessions in it every single uh, year. And that's very exciting. I think uh, 
as we've talked about, the internationalization of Mormon studies has to be a next step in terms of really profound attention being paid to stories outside the United States, to stories that we haven't told, not just of the kind of institutional leadership of men. And we've done a good job of this, but there's more that we can do of talking about women's experiences and women's stories. And so there's just so many frontiers. I mean, when I put this book together, you know, Directions for Mormon Studies, I mean, we, we pointed lots of ways that, that I think we can move forward, but it, even then I was only skimming the surface. I mean, there's so many more. The, the, Mormonism is so rich. There's so many stories to tell. And so I think it's applying all the best methods and tools that we have from uh, the study of religion, learning to apply that to Mormonism, and, and moving forward to, to make contributions. You mentioned respectability, you know, gaining intellectual respectability. You know, that's what 20th century American Mormonism was about, is gaining respectability in the public eye. When uh, an institutional religion uh, like Mormonism, uh, or, you know, you could probably argue, uh, you could ask this question of any other religion, when it gains respectability, so-called, is there a price that it pays? I mean, is there some kind of compromise at work? Well, yes, because it's, it's hard to be respectable and radical at the same time. And there are radical impulses within Mormonism. I mean, in some corners, just uh, declaring a belief in God is, is a kind of radical proposition. Obviously, uh, some of the church's positions on marriage and, and other things like that are, uh, are now countercultural in, in a way that they uh, once weren't. But uh, the desire for respectability and mainstreaming, which is what allowed for the success of Mormonism in the 20th century does sometimes mean tamping down some of the countercultural and radical impulses of the religion. It means having to play by the rules of the game usually established by somebody else. And certainly this has been done in, in the academy for Mormon studies to, to become part of the secular academy. This has been done in politics. This has been done in all kinds of fields where Mormonism has gained great currency and respect but it's by playing the, the, the rules that somebody else set up. Now, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens as we move forward, as the church moves forward in the 21st century, as it gains more confidence. I, I think there can be a kind of boomerang effect that once you have gained respectability and mainstreaming and also a kind of critical mass that the Mormonism has, has achieved now, that allows you the kind of strength and hopefully confidence to say, you know what, we are unique. Uh, we're not just the same as everybody else. We don't want to be persecuted, so we're not going to go back to some of the things that, that happened in the 19th century. But we have a unique message and a unique contribution to make to the world that other communities can't because we have a unique message and a un unique identity. So I think actually mainstreaming and respectability can be, provide a kind of platform for Mormons and Mormonism to now do some really interesting and innovative things moving into the future. Excellent. And with that, we'll close things up. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, oh, Mason. great to be here. Thank you. Here's what's coming up on the next episode of the LDS Perspectives podcast. Throughout history, many of the brethren attempted to rationalize and justify the policy. In doing so, they brought up issues which we now understand are often blatantly not only false, but hurtful. It reminds me of Elder Oaks' statement, if I could be so bold as to read that. He said this, if you read the scriptures with this question in mind, why did the Lord command this or why did the Lord command that? You'll find in less than one in a hundred commands was any reason given. It's not the pattern of the Lord to give reasons. We can put reasons to revelation. We can put reasons to commandments. When we do, we're on our own. 
And then he said this regarding the race and the priesthood issue. Some people put reasons to the one we're talking about here, and they turned out to be spectacularly wrong. LDS Perspectives Podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the guest and podcaster alone. An LDS Perspectives Podcast and its parent organization may or may not agree with them. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS Church leaders, policies, or practices.